Solomon Northup is an expert player on the violin. I was born a free man, lived with my family in New York. Be good for your mother. Until the day I was deceived. To Solomon. Kidnapped. Sold into slavery. Well, boy, how you feel now? My name is Solomon Northup. I'm a free man. And you have no right whatsoever to detain me. You're no free man. You're nothing but a Georgia runaway. Hello and welcome to the Spoiler Guys podcast, where we bring you the film reviews that are only safe to listen to after the credits roll. Back battling the time difference with me are my Spoiler Guys, Giles Hardy. Hello, Giles. Uh, Yes, I've been taken south for 12 years of winter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in the winter here. I'm in Belfast. Oh, jeez. And uh, Mark Fennell. Hello, Mark. Hello, how are you? I have no uh, funny, quippy thing because it's so not a funny, quippy movie. (laughs) No, it's really not a funny, quippy movie because today, yes, we will attempt to be articulate about Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave. I say attempt because I don't know about you two, but I had no words Uh. by the end of the film. I was just sitting there quietly weeping. Uh, But this is, of course, the hugely lauded pre-Civil War biopic of Solomon Northrup, the New York musician and family man who was horrifically abducted and sold into slavery. Now, need need say no more. Everyone's been raving about this film. Uh, So, Mark, how did you manage your expectations facing 12 Years a Slave? Uh, My expectations were that I really didn't want to see it. I think Giles and I were talking about this before we had seen the film. (laughs) Everything about the movie just looked like hard work. I really felt like it was going to unfold in real time. And the funny thing is I felt that way with every single one of Steve McQueen's movies. Like every time I see the the trailer, (laughs) I'm like, oh, you are just going to be hard art wank work. And then I get in there and about after 20 minutes, I'm like, he gets you into a rhythm and there's something about the way he uses the camera and the performance and all those other elements to, to really put you in that time, put you in that headspace. uh, And, and he finds really great ways of shocking you out of your, your sense of, awful uh, slavery malaise. And so actually to say that it far exceeded my expectations is a bit of an understatement because my expectations were, please, daddy, don't make me see the movie. Um, And the end result was, (laughs) oh, that was really, it was, we'll get into this, but it's super draining, but also kind of amazing. Right. Okay. And uh, Giles, did, did Mark make you see the movie? Did you make him see the movie? How did you guys manage to, uh, I didn't hold Mark's hand during um, the slavery. In fact, there was no uh, emancipation or, uh, you know, uh, enforced uh, watching, it would seem weirdly, inappropriately ironic. Um, I had much the same attitude, though. I came to this with that sort of like this is being held out to be so important. And I think there were two different factors. One was um, uh, the butler. Uh, Lee Daniels, the butler, which came out last year, Mm. had really muddied the waters on this film for me because America, you know, according to what we got, you know, in the media here, absolutely raved about that film. And when I finally saw it, I couldn't have been more disappointed if I had, you know, accidentally seen The Chipmunks 3. Uh, It was a genuinely (laughs) poor film. And so the amount that it had been raved about made me worry that that subject matter completely removes objectivity from the media when they're viewing uh, cinema in on, on the topic. And I'm, you know, by the topic, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, particularly African-American relations, you know, in with society. So I was worried on that part. At the same time, this was being 
lauded as the second coming of cinema at times. So I, I was really simultaneously worried that I was not going to like it at all, but very worried that it was um, it was being set up for too much uh, expectation. And I suppose mm-hmm. it certainly is a hell of a lot better than The Bala. This is This is a very, very good film. But <laughs> almost problematically, I ended up, noting it more for the small things that I wasn't loving as much as noting it as a standalone good film. Oh, okay. So, all right, it sounds like we need to get into the things that you you didn't like as much, but before we do, um, I'll echo all of your sentiments about about the expectations and, and trying to manage them given everyone raving about this film. I came very late to the party on this one and it was kind of impossible to you know, avoid the rapture of sentiment. Um, and also like you, Mark, I just, I wasn't sure I wanted to put myself through it. I knew what I was going to be in for. I knew it was going to ruin me. Um, there's this whole thing. I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast about cultural vegetables. There was this great article in the New York times a couple of years ago about having to, you know, eat your cultural vegetables. And this film very much felt like in, in that way that you, it was very worthy. It was very, you know, fibrous. It was going to be Hardly. good for the system, but it was going to be hard work in a way. Um, it felt like a homework and, film. Yeah, totally. Right, That's yeah. what it is, the homework film. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel like you should watch it rather than actually going to watch it because you want to go to the cinema. And, you know, it's a dreary old wintry weather here in, in Ireland and it's like, do I do I want to do that to myself? Do I actually want to put myself through that? So it took a couple of weeks of, of ramping myself up and then I got to the cinema and sure enough, you know, I... Uh, after the first kind of couple of minutes, I was just in the film. I was along for the ride. And then, as I said, I sat there by the end. I just had tears pouring down my face and I was completely, completely in the film and just like, just, Oh my, I don't want to jump to the end, but the fact that he walks into his family and apologizes, I was just like, anyway, so point being, I had a massive emotional reaction to this film, which is what I was. You bring up a good point. It was a good year for um, amazing acts of graciousness in Oscar films between this and Philomena because they're both films that act on amazing, like confounding amounts of graciousness in the face of horrific treatment. Yeah. And there's something that's like adds to the catharsis when someone is, is, is gracious like that. And and there's that moment that you just like, it just compounds the, the feeling when he just walks in and apologizes to these had a couple of difficult years lately. And I was just like, (laughs) anyway, Point being, I the, this film completely undid me in so many ways um, that I, I want to talk about so much. Uh, but but Giles, let's let's leave back to you. Let's let's hear about these couple of things that that twigged for oh, you. No, I'd rather I don't want to do that. I don't I, I don't want to be painted as the guy who um, disliked the film by any stretch of imagination. I don't want to start launching this there. Plus, uh, they are largely towards the end of the film. So as much as we are the spoiler guys, let's not actually. I've already jumped. Start. Yeah. I've already jumped to the end. Shortly, uh, look, I'm unconvinced by the decision uh, by Brad Pitt to cast himself as the only good white man in America. I think a couple <laughs> people. I, I think that's a that's a a very valid criticism that I've heard a couple of different places, and it is very notable that in a film produced by Brad Pitt, he enters the friendly Canadian to kind of go, you know what, all of America. I'm be honest with you, this shit is whack. Which is my subject <laughs> of what he actually said. Like people said, said that it like ruins the film. I don't know, Alice. What do you reckon? Ruins the film? Maybe, maybe not. No, I wrote my notes. I wrote hippie Abe Lincoln. Like I don't, <laughs> just everything that was going on. He did not kill one vampire. <laughs> no, no, yeah, very true. disappointing. 
you guys can go back and listen to our Abe, Abe Lincoln Vampire Hunter podcast. But uh, yeah, he was so distracting as hippie Abe Lincoln. Um, and just the like, slavery is bad, eh? And like, the, the fact is, okay, where, where I will defend it slightly is that it built to that scene because I was absolutely heartbroken when Solomon, uh, when you see the last ember die out of his letter. So you'd already built to like the risk that he had to take yeah. to let someone know of his, of his fate. Um, and that scene was just horrific, but then for it to, for it to turn on hippie Abe Lincoln, I'm sorry, it, it did lose. Well, me. no, I, th- I think it's the stunt casting that really annoyed me because look, I recognize that, you know, there's some big names in this, but the problem with stunt casting that scene is you instantly believe that this person will save him. And after you, they'd gone to such lengths with exactly what we're talking about, this brilliant setup of the letter and then the letter being destroyed, the last great white hope that turns up is so blatantly going to save him because it's Brad Pitt. I mean, we're already staring at a film called 12 Years a Slave, so there's a decent hint. He's been down there for about <laughs> 11 and a half years. This could go well for him. But there's just the bit where, I mean, I'd like, to, I'd like there to have been some suspicion that this guy might also betray him and you know that brad pitt as producer of the film as brad pitt is not going to drop any kind of ball here he is we're just lucky he didn't pick him up one-handed and fly him to the north can we can we coin the term deus ex brangelina is that kind of what happens in the film i will actually i i I think this is a good way i actually think this is a really good way to do this episode because we're because the way we always do these episodes we always start with it's amazing it's amazing we spend and the rest of it just gradually start picking apart the things we don't like. I think as a challenge, this one, we should do it the other way around. We're going to start with all the things we don't <laughs> like and eventually we will work our way back to, but it's amazing. So on that note, my yeah. nomination for something that I actually <laughs> think didn't 100% work about it was the soundtrack, which is amazing and it's beautiful and it's oh, perfect. Oh, yes. And it's also 100% stolen from Hans Zimmer's own score for Inception. <laughs> All of the chords I, are the same. Yes, I found that super distracting. I actually wrote that because I'm like, it's this is Hans Zimmer and it's super percussive and quite modern and I was – and then it was, yeah, it was almost as if you got the Inception bowl. Yeah, I was waiting. Out there, when, he, I just went, when he gets home, <laughs> I apologise for my appearance, is all I wanted. <laughs> Someone's going to create that now. Please, please. Someone we do it. we aren't the first to have spotted this. In fact, the, I, I was listening to the Slash Filmcast and, and when they talked about it, they talked about the fact that Hans Zimmer has consistently borrowed from himself over the years. So they sort of forgave it as a, a trademark at this point rather than uh, it being specific to this film. But, yeah, we, we're certainly not the first to note it. I'm sure that, as you say, the Inception soundtrack version is a common. Um, but, uh, <gasps> I really yeah. want to see that now. I just want to see the spinning top. 12 years of being accepted. No, I just want to see the spinning top when he gets back to the family. And it's just like, wait, did any of this actually happen? Oh, Oh, there's a great mashup in that. I mean, look, it is true. All of the really great, and this is the thing, those really big name uh, uh, composers, they do actually so many films in a year now that they that they do end up just having a sound after a while. John Williams really had a sound and, and Zimmer has a sound and James mm. Newton Howard has a sound. I think the only one that I think mm. has somehow managed to not sound like they're 100% replicating themselves over and over again uh, is Alexandre Desplat, who's a – you're a big fan yeah, of Yeah, Desplat. And he did – he's done yes, so many films Yes, I love him. Recently. Yeah, and he does. And he is a chameleon. He really – like if you listen to his Fantastic Mr. Fox – soundtrack that's completely different from Harry Potter and it's completely different again mm. from uh 
the King's Speech, you know, and he's done, he's done births. He's done so much. I love Alexander Depart, yeah. but yeah, Hans Zimmer, I totally in, a, in agreement with you that it became distracting at times, especially because you're dealing with a musician. Mm. I was wondering how they were going to bring his music into the film. Um, and then I, and then I, I noticed just realizing how percussive the soundtrack was. And I, and I just, I kept noticing it, which I, I don't think you should really do in a film. It should just be part of the fabric of the film a little bit more. Well, well, I was I, just going to say, I actually didn't mind that the music was... I, I, I liked that the music was present and I liked that the music was deeply emotive from the get-go because I, my one fear for it was that it was going to be a really Spartan experience. And sometimes McQueen's films kind of can go for that Spartan thing, but I kind of was really grateful that he went for the heartstrings pretty much from the opening chord and I kind of needed that a little bit. because like, I know I'm watching an oscar movie and I kind of want to care, I need to care if I'm going to get through this. So in that sense, it, it kind of worked for me. I had a very small point to make, which is that I, I don't think that Mark should have referred to John Williams as, a, as having had a career. Uh, he just did the soundtrack for The Book Thief, so I don't think we need to use the past tense just yet. I keep forgetting he's alive, mostly because The Book Thief was so fucking <laughs> awful. Oh, wow. Okay, on that note, spoiler alert, he's still alive, Mark. <laughs> Dear John Williams, and still working. I apologise. Uh, no, I don't think he's going to forgive you. Congratulations for not being dead. Also for Star Wars. <laughs> oh, my God, on that note. <laughs> I'll vote for, for the moment that didn't quite work for me in the film. I'm really curious to hear your guys' takes. When uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor breaks the fourth wall, right before he gets, uh, before he gets rescued... Solomon, he, he's standing and he just looks, there's a scene, it's just right on his face. His eyes are kind of, you know, filled with tears. He looks around, he looks around, he looks around, he looks at the camera and then he looks past. And I just, and it just completely, like, it just had, it was like a, a you know, a slap to the face in, in, a, in a way and I didn't know quite what to feel at that moment um, and it was just before he gets rescued so I was I was wondering what I was supposed to be feeling and what, whether or not it was supposed to be that a reflexive moment to take on the weight of the experience and to, you know, take it into yourself. But, I, yeah, I'm just not sure I needed to be broken out with the fourth wall at that moment. Hmm. Interesting. It doesn't stick in I my memory. It, yeah, I was kind of, no. yeah, I... I I, I, when you describe the moment, I remember it. But in that sitting, watching it, I kind of, I, I think sitting watching it, I, I, I don't think it left an impression as breaking the fourth wall. But now that you frame it that way, I guess it kind of was in a very um, controlled manner. I think there is obviously mm. value in having a moment where you turn the culpability. And culpability is probably a word that's going to come up a lot with this film because it, it, it plays across a number of different characters. But I think at some point when you've... Re- okay, let me think of it this way. You've reached that point in the film where you've seen everybody and nobody accept responsibility for the way that everything's kind of happened. So Fassbender's like, this is the way it is. Mm. Uh, Alfred Woodard is, you know, is is, you know, is a black slave. It's also played her own part in letting slavery continue. Uh, and and mm. everybody... And, and, you know, you've had the, the Benedict Cumberbatch character who is ostensibly a lovely guy but is, is also kind of like the centre of moral decrepitude about white Americans at the time. So everyone's kind of, in their own way 
pass the buck of responsibility. So there is something almost in that moment where he looks down the barrel of a camera to you as an audience member and goes, so what role did you play in that? And it's obviously mm. not as crass as that, what I just described, but I think it's probably important to have that moment where everything you've seen, all the drama coalesces and looks down your barrel, barrels you and goes, where is your place in all this? I can kind of, that's how I'm rationalising at the moment, I think. Okay, because I, okay. I think Giles? I didn't take it as breaking the fourth wall, which is not to say that it wasn't. Um, I obviously just interpreted it in my way. I, I think the reason it doesn't stick in my mind is because when I now try and remember that scene, what I'm seeing is we were finally given the chance to look deep into his eyes and just see a broken man. And I didn't get it as he was looking at us. I got it in the sense that there is only one way to genuinely look inside a human being, and that is into their eyes, and that they were giving us that. So perhaps I was uh, subconsciously forgiving it, for, and or perhaps it just built in a different way for me in my mind so that by the time we got to that, I felt like that's what I was getting. I, ne- I, did, I never felt like he looked at me. Um, I, in fact, I think almost the whole point is at that point, he has learnt not to look at someone, even if his eyes are pointed in their direction. Like that is the, that is the method in which they are trained, they were being trained, um, to, you know, not cause offence. So given you'd had all of those sort of moments like Michael Fassbender chasing him around the yard and um, and the, mm. the moment where he was told not to read because it had caused him trouble, like he was having his skills paired away from him. So I think that probably it was meant to be a case of he can look straight at us but yet not break the fourth wall. Perhaps that was a test. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe now I'm overthinking it. But I think that's probably where my head's at on why I didn't feel that he suddenly glanced in my direction. Yeah, good point. Yeah, okay. I mean, I yeah, those are both really good readings of it. I'm I'm ambivalent about the moment um, because perhaps it, I was just so swept up in the film that to that to have him look straight at me was it, it was such a surprise that that I kind of broke out of the film a little bit. Um, but I'm not saying that that was a bad thing, and I'm not sure. Like part of my mind went to the culpability side of things. The other part went to this guy given what he'd just done because the next point I want to go to is that whipping scene um you know he is he is ruined he is forever changed and we can see we can see that but yeah I am just ambivalent about that moment but yeah let's talk about a moment I'm absolutely not ambivalent about that whipping scene holy <laughs> moly wow. the single steady cam shot that just it just stays with you just get stuck in this scene you are locked in there the steady cam is absolutely amazing and the fact that it ends on that shot of the soap I I am still like I've got hair standing up on my arm I'm having like a visceral reaction to that scene it was absolutely extraordinary I I can't see look I've lost my words again holy hell what do we make of that scene Giles I I, I almost be negative about the film because that scene is absolutely incredible because it is, as you say, it is this brilliant use of camera. The scene builds and builds and builds. And every time you think it is going to let the pressure off and you'll finally be as an audience member allowed to creep away from what is the, just the most uncomfortable moment. It just keeps winching it in. So I literally love the fact that, you know, he, he, he's given the whip. You assume he's going to somehow say, no, he takes the whip. He starts whipping her. He's told to whip her harder. You assume he's going to find a way not to. He ultimately is whipping her incredibly hard. Then finally it stops and you think it's over. And then Fassbender starts really hammering into her even worse. So it is an incredible 
building scene. And the criticism I suppose oh. I have is that I don't feel that pretty much from that moment on, I feel like the film is just trying to find a way to end. And I know there's yeah. quite a lot of film left to go, but it's like it's had its final moment of horror and it is, you know, it has crushed the human spirit so well. And then all we've got left is for St. Brad to ride in on his Canadian <laughs> charger. And then the, my other complaint, moose, which is right? actually the final scene. Um, I, but uh, that's, a, that's another comment. But so, yeah, I, I, I do think that scene is amazing, but that scene uh, almost serves to highlight my, my, my vague concerns, which are all in the final scenes, I'm realising. One of the amazing yeah. things about the film, though, excluding the final scene, is McQueen does have an amazing ability to find, to know when you are drifting, to know when it's, it's becoming banal and samey uh, and find a way of shocking you. And what's good is the variability in the way he does that. So sometimes it'll just be, you know, he'll let the moment where you are lost. uh, He'll let that moment where you just totally feel his loss hang for a bit where he's, he's almost kind of paralyzed by the sense of loss. And then he will find a way of shocking you within a scene, within a shot with, with a cut or with an edit. But then you also get that particular scene, which within that construct, which is already quite a violent scenes, a lot going on he will find a way of bringing in like the interpersonal politics of the wife, the master, mm. the slave, the other slave, uh, and he will find a way of, of shocking you within those scenes. And so what I actually think is it's a very subtle skill that uh, it's not a showy skill, and there are showy elements to the film, but it's actually about expectation management and, and really having that intrinsic sense of where the audience is at in that moment. I found that he actually managed that stuff really well, like knowing how to to freak you out and to shock you and, and to, and to startle you mm. within, without ever, you know, without ever stepping out of the bounds of the universe with the possible exception of Brad Pitt, Canadian God. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree entirely. And the scene, my favorite scene and favorite is a weird word, but the, the biggest scene <laughs> or the biggest impactful scene, now my words are going now, uh, the scene of the most impact for me uh, was the scene where the slaves are being sold. And I think that that's oh. a perfect example of what you're talking about, where Stephen McQueen just kept manipulating the scene uh, with, you know, the introduction of uh Benedict Cumberbatch's Paul character Giamatti. as as the well, we already had Paul Giamatti who was being this sort of oh, so reprehensible yeah. slave dealer. But you know, I, I was willing to assume that the the slave dealer was uh, probably not going to be set up to be a nice guy. But Benedict Cumberbatch turns up, and he does appear to be <laughs> getting set up as a kind of nice guy. And then you have the introduction of the boy, the son, and the way he's being treated. Oh. And that is that was just genuinely creepy. That was beautifully shot for how awful it felt. And then the tw- the turn where it is put upon Benedict Cumberbatch of, well, why don't you fix this then? And first he's begged, and then Paul Giamatti clearly doesn't even think this man is ever going to be the right kind of slave owner to want to buy this young boy. And just the... A, Paul Giamatti's brilliant in that one moment where he conveys so much with a complete absence of bothering to even ask the question of, well, do you really want to invest in this young boy and do what you need to do with a young boy? He just skips straight past that. And then that final touch where he then just gets um, uh, gets our hero to play the violin because it's all mm. gone to hell. And it's just that scene yeah. was the one that I think genuinely, oh. that was the one where I think you got McQueen doing exactly what you're describing, Mark, and just it just ripped the film apart so well there. Mm. 
And absolutely, I agree. And not only that, but set up so well, because I actually thought they did the flashbacks quite well. And you have, you know, the flashback of him going into the store with his wife, um, you know, completely gentrified. She just wants to buy something for her trip. And then the next store, quote unquote store, is this horrific slave parlor where it's so weirdly gentrified, people wandering around in their bonnets and shit. And and yet there are just naked slaves standing there. It was absolutely, I was completely horrified by that moment. And then you're so right, Giles, it ending on this desperate, desperate um, violin playing, which again is is echoed throughout the film with those manic midnight balls that the slaves have to go through. Ah, because, you know, Fassbender's, yeah, right? And it just gets to me like they're bored. That This is, you know, obviously before TV, before the internet, they've got sweet fa to do and so they just make their slaves dance for them and it was just oh like the whole the the use of music and the way that they set him up as being applauded at the beginning of the film where where, you know his skills are valued he is a person who's valued he and he's applauded and then every time he picks up the fiddle from then on it's just for the most awful reasons and it's oh and don't forget the fiddle is what gets him into trouble because of course that's why he is uh you know seduced to take the trip in the first place where he ends up being kidnapped Mm, and yet another reason why the violin is just a shit instrument but i I was actually (laughs) thinking about no it's not i had to play it as a child i was scarred what can i say um why do you hate music you'd think john williams is dead you hate the violin (laughs) i'm just an asshole don't act surprised you're you're clearly an you're an atonal asshole. <laughs> Normally I just get called nasal. Atonal's a real step down. Um, no, I was thinking, like, with Steve McQueen, Steve McQueen uh, uses so many techniques that most other filmmakers, particularly art filmmakers, uh, come from that background, utterly fucking fumble. And what I love about Steve McQueen is he, he's a guy that demonstrates how to use long pregnant pauses. Uh, jarring cuts. A lot of those, you know, those techniques that people come from video art use all the time, aimlessly and stupidly and infuriatingly. Steve McQueen <laughs> is a fucking expert. This guy uses those that that language of, of let's say art cinema, and I know that's a big, broad, stupid generalisation, but he uses a lot of those over hackneyed techniques like a fucking surgeon, and it's amazing to see him use it in such a way with, with such an intuitive understanding of 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 making. You know, a lot of a lot of directors are good at balancing story, getting a decent performance, people hitting their mark. But what he does is is manage uh, manage to somehow balance narrative and 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 your and where where you're being guided through themes. But also, I think the key thing is about knowing how you in the cinema in your chair are coping and knowing and and doing that right. on mass is a really really hard ask. Amen. Can we then? Turn to the question that half of America seems offended by, which is that an English director made this film. And I find that one of the strangest criticisms that uh, America, I mean, I mean, the fact that the, the sheer lack of self-awareness uh, of that criticism for, because of course no American director has ever done a, a film about anyone else's culture. But I, I, Can I just this... say, we need, we need to introduce a new drinking moment, which is, America did something stupid, drink. 
but I just find it I, I find it a fascinating question because the I've heard this discussed on various uh, fora and the the argument basically seems to go I mean in the same way that there have been people saying that a white director could not make this film because they wouldn't understand it that an English director can't make this film because he wouldn't understand it the fact, the fact that he comes from West Indian background and so therefore you know there's you know a, a significant amount of slavery in that history as well but it's a but it's a just a i find it a surreal notion because surely the objectivity would allow at least as much capacity to tell this story if not in fact a better capacity to tell the story he's got no desire to forgive and probably no genuine desire to overly uh sentimentalize a tale he's you know plus laid on the fact that this is actually a true story uh based from a, a genuine book from the from solomon himself uh i mean you can question mm. obviously you know whether our narrator is uh in any way uh a, a a doubtable, doubtable narrator. I don't think he is, but you know, anyone who writes their own book, you know, it's you know, you get into yeah. that sort of capacity to check and research. But I don't. I basically don't right. get why they think that Steve McQueen shouldn't have done this film. I tend not to like buying into the you know, so and so has license to make this movie because they are blah sort of conversations in general. But I do feel yeah. like if you're if you're a director of of any kind of. Uh, of of the background that, that McQueen is, which is West Indian, you do actually have a little bit of license already. You certainly have more license than, you know, Ed Zwick did making glory. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think there's a little <laughs> bit of that. But where it doesn't, where the ethnic, the, your your nationalism in terms of UK, US, I just don't, I don't get into that at all. I, I just, I, I just think it's stupid. I just think it's really fucking dumb. Yeah. I can't I can't give you I, a better opinion than people are fucking idiots. I agree. I feel like it's just kind of clickbait in a way. It's like what what can I write about this film? People have lauded it. I you know, it's a bit of a we need to fill column inches, this would be interesting. And no one else is interested in Hans Zimmer in- plagiarizing himself. <laughs> Right. So let's talk about whether or not a, a you know an English director should have directed this. I feel like it's just yeah, it's just clickbait in a, in many ways. And if there is any actual reasoning behind it, I think that it just gets torn down within a second. Which is just yeah, a that he has a West Indian background. B the proof is in the pudding. It's a freaking amazing film. It's one that is incredibly astutely realized, sensitively realized, harrowing. Like you know, he just he has absolutely proven that he could tell this story. Like, okay, Mm. maybe had he done a really shit job and it was really on the nose or really apologetic or. Sorry if it was the butler. You know, perhaps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We should do one of these on the butler because seriously, who knew that there was one family to whom the entire civil rights struggle just happened to occur to fictitiously right and you (laughs) oh my god and you hear yeah and you hear lee daniels talk about the butler and and you you hear the passion in his voice like he was obviously incredibly invested and perhaps too close to it i don't i don't know i'm you know that's a that's a whole other discussion but i just yeah i'm happy just to go with mark and be like people are idiots can we say though that 12 years a slave would have been greatly improved by the addition of oprah because (laughs) oprah was the one good thing about the butler I was about to say, yeah, I, I wasn't sure if you're joking cool, because actually. she was spectacularly good in that. Yeah, she, she, was was amazing. she was amazing. Sorry, no, um, I'm never so... joking about Oprah. I believe in the power of Oprah on, on screen. I think she's fucking the best. 
No, no. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But okay, let's talk about someone who was amazing in in this film, and that's Michael Fassbender. Oh, I've yeah. I've told everyone he's my future husband. We know this, but in this film, he auditioned for way, Fifty Shades of Grey. Was, right? <laughs> totally. The way the physicality of his performance was extraordinary the the use the focus on his hands the way his hands were always around throats or the way he just treated like he manhandled the slaves he was always propping himself up against them he was always just like had you know he just lean on someone or he just move someone he if they had been dogs you wouldn't have been surprised like the way he was just roughhousing and manhandling the slaves i just thought it was all so well done and so creepy and then he just to match it he had these eyes that could just turn on a dime when you would just see him go to that rageful drunk place and it was oh my gosh what a performance it's funny though because like yes it's an amazing performance but you kind of knew going into it that that was going to be like the the bravia performance but to me that the one that kind of stole the film was actually sarah paulson as his wife Mm. and i love sarah paulson because she's kind of like she's she's actually a little bit even though she's got american horror story under her belt she's still kind of to me a bit of a character actor she pops in she does amazing performances and then she pops back out again and this was so that like from top to toe it was just like oh you are just every time you are on i don't know what you're gonna do but i know it'll be awful I will raise you a Benedict Cumberbatch to that because I also thought he was the beautiful <laughs> counterpoint to Cumberbatch uh, to uh, Fassbender to the point of um, and I like the fact that we now have a German and a Pom who are turning up in this, which is clearly because yes. the director was English and didn't understand. Uh, but um, the I particularly like because you're absolutely right with uh, Fassbender the way he was the physicality, the way he was leaning on people and just touching them and. To me, that was very intentionally counterpointed with the way that Cumberbatch kept trying to give them religion. And it's actually which is more offensive in many ways was a really interesting because he was desperately trying to save them and Cumberbatch is trying to pretend, you know, that he is basically treating them as, as good as he possibly can. And there's sort of an honesty to Fassbender's treating them as property, which I really liked. I mean, it was particularly interesting that by the time he, that, um, Solomon was handed to Fassbender's character. He, we'd been told that he was this man who was, you know, so awful that almost bizarrely this Edwin Epps was not as bad as I expected him to be. Like I expected him to be a bit caricature at that mm. point. And it was really interesting that he was a very, uh, he was a very fleshed out character and we got a real sense of his motivations, particularly through his wife and uh, and through his relations with uh, his, his favourites and, and, and also his property. But uh, no, I thought that was fascinating, but I, I think you, you needed Cumberbatch's performance for Fassbenders to work. Yeah. And Cumberbatch coming apart at the end there where he's like, don't tell me that. Like, don't t- just, oh, the, I just, it went through. He's lying on the floor, you know, and, and Solomon's just like on the bloodied on this pillow um, because, oh, my God, that scene before then where he's just hanging. And, okay, Hans Zimmer, we've already we've already uh, dissed him. But the sound with love. With love. <laughs> of, of Solo dissed him with love, yeah. But the sound, the sound of Solomon hanging, choking, and just and and tiptoeing on that mud, like the squish of the mud, the the guttural cough of the choke, and just that whole moment, how long, how protracted that scene was, was just horrifying. And then to just see him lying on the ground, he tells Bendit Cumberbatch that he's not a slave, and he's like, "But you can't tell me that. Like I have debts." And then I just, I was I was gobsmacked. I was completely the yeah. It must be really hard to be you moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 
I mean, one of the things that is notable is that for a film that has so many cameos, it is surprising that only Brad Pitt's kind of stood out as a cameo. And that has a little bit to do with his function within the story. But, um, you know, Giamatti and, uh, and some of the fellow slaves as well, the woman that keeps crying and, uh, and Alfred Woodard as well, a number of them, they have these kind of, they pop up and they, they, they tell you something about the world, but they don't actually, a lot of them don't necessarily contribute essentially to, to the story, but they contribute to the, the, the things that, can, uh, that add to his emotional experience, but I think particularly the woman that kept on crying about losing her kids. Mm. I think what is surprising is they managed to make that feel quite like a natural tapestry of a really long time in the, you know, this 12 year nightmare that he goes through. Absolutely. I, I just, sorry, it's, it's just, this is so amazingly happy because I'm just obviously, you know, I occasionally like to pretend that I research for uh, the podcast. So I did look at the IMDb page and learnt for the first time today that it is the star of Beasts of the Southern Wild who plays his his daughter. His daughter. Yeah. yeah. And I had no yeah. idea. I mean, talk about stunt casting, you know, that, I mean, yeah. she's amazing. She, I, I mean, she says about three things in the entire film, so I don't feel bad about uh, not not recognising her. But, yeah, she is Margaret Northup. So, yeah, no, there is a lot of amazing casting here. I think it's all it, – it is all Reven brilliant. Janae Wallace, was that her name? And having, you know, dismissed him as, uh, you know, the, bat, the slave trader was always going to be bad, I would like to give Paul Giamatti a shout-out because he is also brilliant in this as well. Mm, Absolutely. That scene holds together in such a creepy way because of him and because he's so jovial, like he's, he's just a guy doing his thing. He's like a salesman and there's, there's some sort of like, he's slapping them like, yeah, this is good flesh. You know, it's just Mm. horrifying because he is just so jovial and you believe every moment of it. But um, I want to loop back to, to Sarah Paulson quickly, because I agree that the relationship, like Fassbender, is that much more creepy because of her. And then you kind of make this assumption that, oh, okay, maybe the maybe the wife, she'll, you know, she'll take pity on him and maybe that might be his avenue for, you know, for freedom. And then she ends up being just as steely and she tries to make a mark and he's just, and, you know, husband goes, don't you even try to come between me and my favourite. Like, you'll lose that battle. I love that scene. And the way that she turns... Sarah Paulson, like I've loved her since her speech in Serenity yeah. where she was that, that you know, where she talks about, you know, Miranda and, and it all kind of going to hell. Um, but, again, she's the, you know, a comedian who can do these amazing character actor dramatic performances. See, that that's um, where I get stuff just... because I still think of her as Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip where yeah, she yeah. is the, she's the, you know, the we nicest. the same references. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is I spent the entire film going, but she's going to turn around and be nice now, right? She's going to turn around and be nice yeah, now, right? Why isn't she turning around and being nice now? I know, that's, and that's it. Thing, and that's, like, you keep expecting it to fall into certain kind of... Uh, cliché is probably a bit too hard, but you keep expecting it to fall into certain structures where he's mean and she's the nice one and, 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 you know, and, and things like that. Or even like there's the nice slave owner and, and then he sets, her, he sets him free and then maybe he gets caught later again. You keep expecting it to fall into certain structures that I think over the years of slave movies you get lulled into. And the fact that the film deliberately is probably not the right word because it's all factual, avoids that is actually quite mm, impressive. Yeah. And, okay, speaking of Serenity, we should mention she would tell Edgy. There's a lot of Serenity who action is... in this film, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's two. So he... Right. <laughs> most. Yeah. I mean, Sarah... <laughs> yeah, Sarah Paulson and and Chiwetel Ejiofor. I mean, he really has to carry this film. He 
has, I don't know, it's when you were talking about calibration, Mark, about uh, about Steve McQueen realizing where the audience is, I feel like that onus was also on mm-hmm. Chiwetel Ejiofor because there's this whole idea if he'd become too bleak, or I mean, we had to be in his shoes to a certain extent. We had to feel his incredulity when he wakes up in chains, going like, "What the hell? What's going mm-hmm. on here?" And then when he when he can't talk himself out of it, you had to kind of go walk with him through this through this horrible, horrible ordeal. Um, and he had to kind of carry us along. He had to be your guide, but also uh, you had to be a little bit, he had to be an avatar and a proxy for you, for your emotions. So he had to kind of be an empty vessel and a tugboat. <laughs> that is the worst wow. I have ever come up with. That's, that's, that, that really was I something. now. I officially quit. As, as quit, quit what? Your role as Admiral of the Seas? Because <laughs> nautical, apparently you I'm ain't. I'm Admiral Movie Guy, and I say second start of the right and straight on till morning. <laughs> what then? Um, point, point I'm going to just amazing, throw myself onto the two at edge of four grenade uh, and, and, go there, go and, there, and, 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 and let Mark's ship sink. Uh, so, look, Ahoy. I think. He, <laughs> Blub blub blub. Uh, look, there's a <laughs> there's a really interesting role he's got to play because, firstly, obviously this is happening to him, and we need to see him slowly be broken. And the problem with your narrator being broken is you do therefore begin to get into a technically into an area where it is becoming an unreliable narrator scenario because even if they are telling the stories I remember it, how can they possibly remember this as clearly? So I think mm. a they're our narrator, but this is he is as close as we get to normal because he comes from the North and the North clearly represents society heading into this alien world of, uh, of the South. So I think where that leaves us is that occasionally you have scenes where we're watching the most extraordinary thing happen to him and usually his acting you know, is enough that you know, we don't even blink. I mean, the scene where he is dangling on tippy-toe for hours on end mm. at the end of a rope is, is extraordinary, and that is uh, he's simultaneously the subject and the narrator, and that's a, uh, a, that's a lot of burden, particularly when you've got so little grip on the ground, uh, he says, continuing his, right. to butcher his own metaphor. Um, I also think he <laughs> is the, the reason a couple of scenes work. I'm... I have a feeling I'm meant to be more impressed with the opening scene than I am by the time it comes around. I'm not, this is, we're going to get back to one of the few things that I, you know, it, I pick apart. I'm not saying many of these things are bad, but the, the, basically the sex scene that we open on. The emergency, I'm, the emergency. I feel sex. like it, that, that, yeah, that, <laughs> that to me is, it's a, it's probably close to being a bit of unnecessary shock value in a film that's not exactly going to struggle for hits. I don't mm. quite understand why we needed that scene. I certainly don't understand what that scene really was trying to tell me. I can speculate with the best of them, but I it's not a scene where, you know, once we understood his actions in the scene, I sort of went, well, I sort of saw that the first time. It's not like I now interpret this scene entirely differently. Uh, and I think he was given... Actually, I think he was given too much heavy lifting in the final scene. I think he is the only reason the final scene works, but I actually think that final scene is stagey, theatrical melodrama. Uh, and particularly once you get to the point of meeting the granddaughter, I really feel like it was a really strange way of going, 
it was like it was trying to say, by the way, in 12 years he missed life, as though we're all sitting there going, well, I assumed everyone sat around twiddling their thumbs. Wasn't it a son? Wasn't the whole point that it was a son called Solomon? Uh, I, I, It was a son called Solomon. I don't know that that necessarily makes it the point. I still think that entire scene was, was very heavy-handed, and I, and I also don't necessarily understand the opening scene. Okay, I'll I'll speak to the opening scene. Yes, I totally agree that there's something to be said on the page, you know, first first few pages of a script to have like an emergency sex scene and and to have people be like, you know, buy into the film with a bit of sex. Okay, what's going on? Um I thought that it earned it because of the of the way that the film shows humanity being drummed out of them. If humanity is being drummed out of you, then how do you feel anything and how do you experience any kind of happiness or any kind of joy. And I'm not saying, I actually thought it was so desperate. It wasn't about joy. I'm calling it emergency sex for that reason. It was just about feeling something and about him appreciating that she needed to feel something. Like it's essentially she raped his hand, right? Like it wasn't kind of a, you know, it wasn't a pleasant experience at all. That's going to be the pull quote Um, for this episode, by the way. (laughs) She raped raped his hand. hand. Alice Pynan, five stars. Five so, you know, and I suppose, especially <laughs> if you've seen Shame, <laughs> ew. I suppose, especially if you've seen Shame, you can see how how sex isn't always about love. It's about all sorts of other things, and in that moment, it it was just about. But aren't you, know, you def- getting some sort of? Aren't feeling. you defending the scene, not its placement? I have no problem with the scene. I don't understand why we open with it. Can I just say one thing? Um, I'm never going to complain about a sex scene ever in a movie. I've just suddenly, like, I'm listening what to What if it has a John Williams like, soundtrack using purely violins? <laughs> yeah. I mean, provided it's not like a, like a, you know, a rape scene. I, I've just suddenly realised any movie I watch, if it's, if there's a sex scene in it, I'm not complaining. I'm fine with it. And I, and to, the, the converse of that, because now I sound like a seedy bastard, Captain Seedy Bastard to you on the good ship, John Williams, um, <laughs> is that I am enough of a softy and desperately needed to be hugged so badly at the end that the family resolution scene was actually, it was exactly precisely what I needed. I needed oh, okay. to see that family hug. I needed, I needed just like, yep. I needed like the, the no, family ties that. theme to start playing in the background and maybe a little bit of the Golden Girls theme as well. I just like, hold me, never <laughs> let me go. Thank you for being a friend and other things. Like I, I'm just enough of a softie that I needed that to offset my yeah, desperate I'll, need to see any sex scene in any movie anyway. I'll plus one that just because of the need, like how else are they going to finish the film? Okay. We can, we can speculate, but I think that you needed a hug. Like you needed some sort of emotional catharsis. You needed family. Like the whole point was that he'd been, you know, he'd lost his name, he'd lost his family, he'd lost everything, he lost his humanity. And I mean, yes, okay, it's incredibly trite to think about it being, you know, reinstated with a hug. But I don't know, the fact that he walked in and apologised and then gets hugged, like I I was there, I was weeping, I, I'm i just not sure what else they could have, how else they could have wrapped up this story other than... I mean, it could have been worse. Like, he could have pulled yes, out the okay. fiddle and they all could have done like Tiny Dancer together. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely on board with the hug, and actually, you've 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 sold me on the final scene. I do think it is still. It feels like it was a pickup scene, like the fact that it was all filmed in one 
room, but maybe it isn't. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I can. Mm. I'm being particularly um, niggly, but I, I'm still not convinced on the need for the sex scene at the start. I don't understand that. I get the. I understand the emergency sex. I understand the the point Alice has made, uh, but I'm very curious about why we had to start that way. You know what? Look, it's like intellectually, yeah, yeah. I totally follow. Like I do intellectually, I do think it was a weirdish way to start, <laughs> particularly given that they never kind of they never really picked it up and did anything with it. But no. like I said earlier, Chuck sex new film, and I'll be like, yeah, all right, good, great. So do you think it was just how, how there to, get, to lure us in? How to get people to watch a film about slavery. Start with sex. Start, Excellent. Start with, um, you know. Is there, a, is there a new problem where a lot of people are walking out of cinemas after the first five minutes <laughs> nowadays? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like he's not making this film for the TV audience now, is he? I think that my thing, I, my reading of it is, about the humanity and yes okay it's a ploy to start with sex but the fact is I feel like in hindsight when you come back to that scene you realize how much he's lost and how desperate he is and that his desperation is supposed to be mirrored in her desperation in that moment so when you when it opens you see that a really desperate woman raping his hand by the time we come back to it you realize that he is just as desperate as she is like this is the state that he's in and so that's why I bought it but I also I more appreciate the fact that it's kind of provocative to start a film with some sex. Mm. You appreciate as in you recognise, you appreciate you like. I I appreciate it. It worked for me. Let's just say it worked for me. You know, none of us has mentioned Lupita Nyong'o. Um, and she's very good. Uh, also, I just wanted to say her name. So there was that. That happened. Excellent. You can say her name. I can't. Lupita Nyong'o. She's right up with Quavenjane Wallace. And she would tell Asia Fall. And I can say ethnic names because I work for SBS. <laughs> <laughs> I know. She was my very goodness. good. Hope, I mean, she was she's excellent. She's being well, well recognised and for good reason, mm. right? Like that's it. Oh, and when she just faints at the end, when he gets rescued. Oh. I know this sounds wrong. But a little part of me hopes that when that moment when she fainted was actually her dying and that was her release from that awful world. Is that... I had the same thought. No, I had the same thought. I hope she... No, I think it means you've watched too many Disney films. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. A Disney film would allow her to be, you know, put out of her misery and I apologise for, you know, particularly um, cruel terminology but uh that that's i mean it is it's like if it was a if it was a dog you'd put it out of its misery the whole point is that you know she wants to die various times and can't and i think that i like at in at the filmmaking level i like that they establish that even though he has been saved they establish very much that you know he is one on this farm let alone in any kind of other context i mean that served a lot more that that faint of hers than any paragraph of text at the end that we knew we always knew was coming and i yeah so i i I liked that a lot and i liked that it happened just off screen as well like as she fainted the camera moved away from her so you didn't actually you didn't kind of see her hit the ground it was kind of the final i don't know the insult to add to the injury like it was just kind of passed out the the final dismissal the dismissal yeah right yeah well, let's. Uh, I feel like we should have a, a group hug after this because Let me get my fiddle. this is a film that. that Let me get your grandchild. <laughs> <fun>. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, yeah. I should uh, say thanks so much for listening. Or now, because I'm a Dublin, I should say thanks a million. Thanks a million. I'll work on that. It's still really bad. Sorry, Dublin. Oh, I don't um, feel so bad about being Captain Killing Cop John Williams anymore. <laughs> Thanks a million for listening, everyone. Uh, Thanks, guys. We'll be sure to bring you more from the spoiler guys soon.
Wow. <laughs> that was terrible. Oh, oh, you're adorable. Went down to the River Jordan where John baptized three. When I walked the devil in hell, said Johnny baptized me. I say, Roger and roll. Roger and roll. My soul arise, Lord, for the year. Roger and roll.